You may not know this, but I actually get nervous every time I sit down to record one of these. <laughs> but I am especially nervous today, because this is actually my first time in this show where someone has requested for me to look at the Tales series. Uh, as I've said many times, and will probably say a few hundred more times, I don't actually choose what I ruminate on. Uh, my patrons do. And when I first saw that someone had finally requested a Tales of game, I'm like, oh god, okay. Here we go. <laughs> Here we go, boys, because <clears throat> the Tales of series is a series that I praise but don't have a lot of familiarity with. It's not like Dragon Quest or Final Fantasy, which I know, you know, in, inside and out and could talk about without even having to think about it. I've only really been gone in-depth into one Tales of game before, Tales of Symphonia, specifically. And so this was kind of a first for me, really. You might say, well, why do you praise the Tales of series if, you know, you're not really familiar with it? Well, I shouldn't say I'm not super familiar with it. It's just that I have only really played Symphonia, but I've been following the series since, uh, I guess that would have been the Game Boy Advance era. And from all intents and accounts, and my friend Pax, my great friend Pax is, of course, a huge fan of the series, it is a good series. It does good stuff. It has basically become, in many ways, the archetypal JRPG, which I find funny since, you know, just you'd think that would be Dragon Quest or Final Fantasy, but no, it, really, I would say the Tales of series fits that definition a little bit better, for good and for bad. There's also a unique tone and flavor to the Tales of series, which I don't really know how to properly communicate. I imagine most people who've played the Tales of series can, knows exactly what I'm talking about. They're like, oh yeah, this is definitely a Tales game, right? And of course, there's the creator's own thoughts on the matters, because they have their they have their own terminology, and I forget what it is right now, forgive me, but they've got, like, their main games, which is all designed around thematic significance. They basically choose a theme, and then go make the game, which is actually kind of unusual, believe it or not, even for an RPG. And then they, uh, then they have their, like, their guidance games, the side games, which are designed to branch off from an existing theme rather than to develop a new one. Just just a cool, interesting little tidbit in the way they pretty much design these games from word go. I kind of like that, that approach ooh, to writing and development. Excuse me. Losing my notes here. I also have to say there's kind of a pattern to a Tales of game that I've noticed. You know, there's usually a fairly typical set of main characters who throughout the course of the game are revealed to be way less typical than they originally appeared to be, you know, as, as layers are peeled back. It's, it's almost a given that there's going to be hidden secrets or realities about the main characters, the playable party members. Then there's a villain who is going to come across as sympathetic or at the very least understandable. He may not be a sympathetic villain. Van is actually a great example of this. He may not be super sympathetic, but he is very understandable. You can completely get where he's coming from. And another thing that the Tales of series goes, and this is so weird, they always do this. There's always like a fake final dungeon. You ever notice that? It's like, all right, and build up a little, and the game goes way out of its way to make you convinced this is the last dungeon, da -da -da -da. and then there's this big boss, and then the game keeps going because you're actually at about the halfway point or the two-thirds point in some cases. Uh, like this one, basically the end of Act 2 of the three acts was effectively the fake last dungeon at the, uh, the absorption gate. Or was it the radiation gate? Shoot, I can't remember which gate it was. It was one of the gates, forgive me. This is a long game. Um, that's, uh, whew. Uh, I had to supplement some of my information on this game uh, with, with YouTube videos and uh, discussions with friends who've played the game and with uh, analyses and write-ups because there's just so much to it. it. That's the other reason I was hesitant. A Tales of game is basically like a Final Fantasy game or a Dragon Quest game. It's large. There's so much to it. I don't actually know how much I'm going to have to talk to you guys about this time. As ever, I sit down and I... I I decide what's on my notes and what I'm going to say based on the, the the idea that I am, like, if I was to go talk with a friend of mine, you know, Pax is a good example here, who, who likes the tales of game, the game I'm specifically talking about, well, you know, what do I want to talk about with him, what do I feel is worth discussing, that's what goes into my notes. So we'll see. I also have... Uh, pronunciation guides here because I kept having issues uh, with Cliffoth, especially for some reason. I kept wanting to say Clifftoth. I don't know where I kept seeing the, the T. It's, there's no T, it's just Cliffoth. They even say it in the game. And of course Phonons, that, that used to throw me. Let's talk about the gameplay. So the Tales of series of the ones I have played are pretty clear ARPGs, but not in the usual uh, sense that, that most ARPGs are. 
I kept wanting to call it a fighting game, at least in terms of the way it played, because you're on this 3D plane, but ultimately you're only really acting on a 2D plane. It's, it's, it's all, there's a line between you and whichever enemy you happen to have targeted or are focusing on, and you can't really like maneuver around or anything like that. That's not, that's not really part of the combat. It's more about approaching or retreating from. I don't, I'm not saying that is a bad thing, by the way. It's just something that kind of adds to that unique flavor of the Tales of series. And I do kind of like how most of the impetus for the combat is on you. There is some RNG involved, especially with the Mystic Arts. And there's a little bit of, uh, I, I guess, reliance on the AI to do the right things. I'll talk about that in just a second, too. But for the most part, what happens is on you. Uh, obviously, you can level. There are stats. There's equipment. You know, it is a fairly... Uh, functional, fully fleshed out RPG. I don't want to say it isn't, but you could, it's possible for you to just stand there and not do anything and lose to a weaker opponent, at least, again, depending on that AI. I, I want to say one thing about the AI. It's the only thing I want to mention. I had this problem with both uh, Yulia and Tyr, where they would, tr they would res someone. And they're like, alright, res, and the person would get up, but the AI checks for behavior patterns, at least I'm assuming this, based on current status and doesn't take into account previous actions or active animations. I noticed this a couple of times with healing as well because the res animation is long. So immediately after resing someone, for example, they would start resing them again because they, they, they checked status to determine what they do next. Well, they're not up yet, because they're still going through the resurrection animation. So it's like, all right, well, I better res them again. It's like, no, no, wait, stop, stop, stop. <laughs> For the most part, the AI was pretty good. Um, they they know better than to use, like, super rare items and stuff like that. And they were able to keep up for the most part. So good design. I, I have no complaint there. One thing I do like about this one in particular, I don't know how many of the other Tales of games do this exact thing. They had this thing that they called the field, uh, the field of phonons, excuse me. And I love this concept. It's kind of, it's basically like an, an adaptation of the dual tech system over in Chrono Trigger. It, not quite to the same extent, but the most basic example is if I'm like, all right, I'm going to cast fire, and I, there's going to be this little field of fire left on the ground, which someone else can then stand in and cast their own ability and have their ability be augmented or changed or elementally altered by the fact that there is that particular phone on the phone on a fire in this case. Uh, still present there. I thought that was a cool system, and I, I liked to go through and just kind of try out as many different varieties of that as I could as I was going through, mostly just for fun, uh, which is why I kind of liken it to the to the dual-tech system. Uh, a couple other things about the gameplay. I don't actually have much to say about the gameplay. Obviously, the Tales of Games have New Game Plus. It's a weird form of New Game Plus. Uh, I, I didn't get to fully flat, you know, examine the New Game Plus of this game because I don't have time to play the game again. But I, I do like the pick-and-choose New Game Plus. I, uh, I, I would prefer a little bit more uh, freedom of that because to speak of the game I know far more in-depth, in Tales of Symphonia, you had to basically accomplish certain acts which gave you, like, credits or whatever. And those enabled you to choose, well, I want to have this carryover and this carryover, and that's going to cost 35 credits. And then you have to play the game again to earn more credits to have more carry-forward, you know, that kind of a thing. I would prefer to just have that choice uh, at the default. I really like the economy system of this game. I know that's probably a big surprise coming from me, but I love the way how you can affect and manipulate and, and, and alter the price of goods in areas depending on what you sell and what you buy um, with, with the commodities and uh, being able to... It, there's actually a... I was hoping for an in-depth fact of just being able to properly set that up just to see how far you could take it. I didn't find any. Uh, but then again, I didn't go that far looking because I didn't actually want to have a walkthrough for this particular game. Isn't that weird, by the way? Most of the time I prefer having a walkthrough for for a game I'm playing that I've never played before for Rumination. This time I actually didn't want one. Uh, and I think I enjoyed the game uh, better for that. But anyways, point being, it would have been nice to see if there was some way to, to do that. I love the idea... Uh, I love the idea of affecting the world based on how you interact with it. And, and having this economy system is a great way to do that. The last thing I want to take about gameplay-wise, even though this isn't quite what most people would consider an aspect of gameplay, but it is, is the skits. Now, I used to call these vignettes. Uh, apparently, the proper official term is skits. Now, let me just say I love the skits. No, I really do. The skits are, in my opinion, one of the most 
critically important elements of a Tales of game, and I mean that with total sincerity. Uh, for those of you who have not played this game, the skits are little side sections where, you know, a portrait of someone will show up and a portrait of the other person, and they'll talk to each other, and that you'll see character interactions and discussions, and it's, it's most, for the most part, it's just flavor stuff, sometimes it's humorous, sometimes it's just, you know, slice of life kind of stories, sometimes it's just everyday kind of stuff, you know. It helps to flesh out the characters tremendously. From a writing perspective, it is another tool to add more depth to characters, to world, and to the, to, to the, the, the development of the themes of the work without having to bog it down through standard exposition or trying to wonder where exactly you could fit a scene like this into the story. Instead, it just kind of is something that you can pop up as a skit, again, gameplay element, to enable service of the story, and I love that. Um, there's some really great skits in this one in particular. Uh, right along there with, uh, I want to say, Tales of Graces is the other one where I really enjoyed the skits of. So I think that's the one. I, I tend to get the Tales of games a little bit mixed up, other than Symphonia, of course. But either way, great stuff. <sighs> let's talk about let's talk about some of the characters. Now I got to talk about Luke first. I mean, obviously I got to talk about Luke first, and I just want to I want to. I want to go ahead and give out a little bit of a thing. So I did have some of this game spoiled for me before I walked into it. Now, that's not like a bad thing. This actually happened years ago. But I knew that Luke started off as a prat. As just this immensely irritating character. Just, ah. And then over time it's explained and then he gets better. So I just have to say that for a large chunk of the initial part of the game... Uh, every time I saw Luke, I just wanted to slug him. <laughs> I, I, please tell me I'm not the only one who had that reaction. Now, I, I get it. You don't have to defend him. You don't have to explain it. I do understand. He's seven years old. He literally had to be taught things like who his parents are, how to eat, how to walk. I get it. I do. But that doesn't change the fact that pretty much up until and just a little bit after uh, as Karyuth, he was a little bit on the irritating side. Now, that being said, I'm glad that was spoiled for me in this case, knowing that that's something that's going to change, knowing that that's something that's going to be explained. Helped me to put up with it. And once I was putting up with it, once I was no longer just focusing on how much it was frustrating me and how much I wanted to slug him, I started noticing little subtle details in his performance. I shouldn't say his performance, because I'll get to that in a second. Uh, but in, in his dialogue and what he's doing and how he's doing it, there's so many moments where uh, Luke comes across as someone who is truly absent. Like, we, this is one of the, the most interesting and clear-cut examples of droid effect I've seen in a game in a long time. Because he and all the replicas, they're just blank slates. You know, they start off as complete blank slates. They don't really have personalities. They don't really have mentalities. And this is a blank slate who was taken in by a wealthy aristocratic family in the upper nobilities, the upper echelon nobilities of... Oh, God, I can't remember the name of the kingdom. Lamsaka or something like that? God, I can't remember the name of it. I didn't write it down. It wasn't super important. But, you know, of the kingdom. And the... You, you can kind of understand why someone who who suddenly is just put into such a circumstance, would come across as this incredibly superior, incredibly uppity kind of person. And yet, and yet, I couldn't help but notice that even despite his attitude, his mentality was still overall positive. And I might not have noticed that otherwise. What I mean by that, let me explain by contradictory example. Uh... Oh god, I can't think of his name. The <laughs> There's a character in the Witcher series. He's a, he's a friend of Geralt, and I can't think of his damn name. You're all just going to make fun of me for this. I'm sorry. I can't think of any names this morning. I've been just blazing through this game for the last, like, three days solid. It's all I've been doing. Uh, some characters in fiction, including this guy from the Witcher series, he's the bard dude, um, are kind of annoying... Uh, I, I'm sorry, I was going to explain by contradiction. I'm ex actually explaining by example, forgive me. They're not great people. They're not. They lie, they cheat, they're rude, they manipulate, they connive. You know, they're not what you would call a good person. Except when the chips are down. You know what I'm talking about with that type of character? When things get real, 
when stuff gets real, all of that facade just kind of vanishes. And Luke is the exact same way. He's, he is just this irritating, frustrating, childish, spoiled brat until things get real. And all of a sudden he gets very protective and very opposed to what I would normally call evil acts. In fact, it is worth noting that the, he, he's okay with killing monsters, and monsters are a fairly regular problem for this particular setting. But the first time he has to kill a person, he freaks out over that. As he should. And I like that. How rare it is, at least in my experience for an RPG in general, to really acknowledge the severity of killing another sentient sapient being. To be like, oh my god, you know. My point being that you could tell that there's this kernel of decency in Luke. Now, it's worth noting and debating, and I would love to hear your guys' thoughts on this. How much of that is Luke's own mentality? How much of that, how much of that came from Ash? And how much of that came from Lorelai? Because we do know that Luke is effectively a complete clone of Lorelei, thanks to the harmonic resonance thing. And we do know that, of course, he was originally based off of Ash. But we don't know exactly how much of him came from Ash, even though he was being raised to be Ash 2.0, as if Ash had had uh, amnesia. So, how much of that is Luke is a very debatable question. Also kind of helps to tie into one of the major overarching themes of this game. Uh, the intended theme is what you do with the circumstances of your birth, paraphrased. But that's not the theme I actually pulled away from the game. The theme I pulled away from the game was destiny. Just in big, glowing, neon letters. Um, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But I mention this because... It's entirely possible that Luke only became a decent person, only had that kernel core nugget of goodness, is because Lorelai had that core kernel nugget of goodness. Because Lorelai does overall seem to be a decent person. If you could call that a person, since technically he's not even really... A... Let's, let's not get into that. Let's not get into that. Let's talk about Tyr. Now, Tyr is an interesting character for me, because in most RPGs, Tyr would actually be the main character. Uh, she's she follows most of the standard beats. And again, I don't actually mean that as an insult, uh, the same way I don't mean the tales of being a typical JRPG is an insult. She's uh, She comes across as very cold, very professional. She's basically this mage soldier who also happens to be a support healer and is damned good in a fight in more of the cases than one, as in cutscenes as, and as well as in the actual gameplay. But the weird thing is that for all her presentation, and the fact she actually even does take charge of the party in more than one case, she ends up being effectively the main character only of her own story, but I think that kind of helps to add, as it, as it basically means that she and Luke and their respective tales, no pun intended, are effectively orbiting each other as they go throughout the course of the game. And thus, it could be argued that both of them are equally the main characters of like two-thirds of each other's stories and then one-third of their own particular arcs, which I thought was a nice way to construct that. Effectively, uh, similar to something that uh, Final Fantasy VI pulled off, where there's no one main character, but instead you've got a couple main characters. In this case, the two. I would argue that it's really just primarily Luke and Tyr. Now, I don't have something to say about all the playable characters. I just wrote down the ones that I thought were interesting. I want to talk about Jade, because Jade was very interesting to me. I kind of wish they'd done a little bit better job of the voice acting on Jade. I, I played the 3DS version, by the way. I haven't clarified that. I, that's the uh, edition I played. Jade... Jade is the type of character that I wish I could see more of in fiction. Again, as with most tales of games, he appears to be this, he's actually this, more depths, etc. He's, he's, he's an ogre, he's got layers... And I really like the the presentation of a sympathetic sociopath. Because it's not something I see overly a lot in, in fiction. Because the, the trait sociopath is generally considered to be a negative trait, for good reason. In fact, Jade himself views this own aspect of his personality as a negative. At one point he even comments on how he wants to go back in time, if, if it were possible, and kill himself as an infant to ensure that the world never has him in it. Now granted, that's also partially because of what he has done with regards to effectively being one of the two uh, initiators of Fomacry, but the, the point remains. It's so weird to see someone who has 
he's basically like a data type character, except minus the morality data from Star Trek The Next Generation. Intellect, but not a lot of emotional attachment and no real sense of a moral compass. He just doesn't really comprehend how people are, are relevant other than the fact that they're supposed to be. And I love that. And I also love how he analyzes himself and how he goes further in-depth into himself and, and trying to explain and understand and comprehend as you go throughout the game. Now, you have to do a bunch of optional stuff, unfortunately, to really see uh, most of Jade's character. But I was compelled to do so because I found him so fascinating of an individual. And, of course, he's also a fantastic example of gameplay and story integration because he starts off super high level, basically as a, as a crutch character, uh, and then... He, he gets sealed, and so then he starts leveling with you, and then he finally breaks the seal as he reaches the, I guess it was five levels, level 50 or something like that, uh, five levels above when he was previously sealed. So wonderful gameplay and story integration with the character in addition to uh, just a fascinator. I would, I would love to see more fiction take what is effectively a negative character archetype and turn it into something more complex like this. Uh, and that brings me to Anise. So Anise is someone I liked a lot less than Jade. Uh, Jade, in many ways, is more or less directly responsible for a lot of the crap that happens in this game. But he is aware of this, he, he, he apologizes for this, he tries to make up for it, he doesn't really think of himself as a good person, and he spends a huge part of his character arc trying to, to, to accomplish this or to have his, uh, have his redemption. Anise, she gets off a little bit too easy. She's probably closer to a typical character in a way that I don't actually care for. Um, yes, I know her parents were being held, and that's why she was a traitor and blah, 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 but there's several circumstances where she could have tried to intervene or, or help the situation, and she doesn't. And she comes across as way more harsh than she otherwise would. It's actually funny to me how negative she is towards other traitors. Uh, maybe a little bit of the self-loathing thing going on there. I'm not actually sure. But, and and my point is that I in no time did I feel that Anise actually earned the redemption that she basically just gets. It's like, oh, my parents are being held captive. Oh, it's okay, we forgive you. <laughs> and that's it? Come on! Because then she just moves on. Now, one thing I did like about her character, this was this was cool. She comes across as a gold digger early on, which is just weird in many ways, but... I figured that was just kind of it, you know, ah, she just wants to marry into money. As you go throughout the game, and there's some optional stuff to, in, to discuss this, we find out that her parents, well, let's just say they don't really know how to deal with money, and they've been giving money away in droves. And in fact, her parents, and her parents are part of another overarching problem I'll get to in a moment, uh, because they have such faith in the score and such belief and ratification of the score that they're, they're totally cool with it. So they just are in massive amounts of debt. And thus we find out that Anise's motivation isn't greed. In fact, it's probably the opposite of greed, because she is trying to prevent her parents from being in a destitute status. And I thought that an extra little niggle did help to make her a more enjoyable character than she otherwise would be. Now, Guy... He's an interesting one for me. I think probably one of the best revelatory moments in the game is when they find out that uh, Dists, I think? He, he gets that hex, right? The curse. And Guy just starts madly attacking Luke in a berserk range. Rage. And they're like, okay, okay, it's cool because he was under this curse and hex. Obviously, we don't hold it against him. Except later on we find out that that curse doesn't actually mind control you. It just lets you act on your your own thoughts or impulses or whatever without inhibition. And that just made me go, huh. And what's also interesting about Guy is he's kind of the opposite, or I suppose the inverse, of, uh, of Jade's character. Because he's this affable, warm, nice, emotional character who is actually pretty dark and violent when you really get down to it. And he never really stops. Like, that is a continuous part of his character. He is still a decent guy at heart. He does have a genuine friendship for Luke that has developed over the course of, the, well, the last seven years. 
And I like the naturalness by, by which the two interact. It, it, it does feel like Guy is, in more ways than one, the actual father, the surrogate father, I should say, of Luke, since he was the one prim- predominantly involved in raising Luke. And it, there's just, I, I don't know how else to put it, there's just a naturalness to the two's interactions that I love. It, it made him very enjoyable. But every time things get real or things get serious, he just gets violent. He is more than willing to attack or destroy or whatever is necessary to make things happen. You can really see that Guy is the kind of person who would probably be a decent leader, but he is still definitely an aristocrat, if you know what I mean. Also, I just have to say that his backstory is really horrible. (laughs) But, I mean, it's a Tales game. What do you want? Um, I also want to talk very briefly about Natalia. I don't actually have much to say about her. At first, she was one of those characters that just made me go, really? Why are you on my screen? That changed pretty quickly. Uh, Ignoring the obvious fact that she's a healer and therefore is more useful to the party, nice little trick in a general RPG is to make a character who's somewhat annoying uh, someone that you have to rely on so that they can then have a story arc where they grow on the character, or excuse me, grow on the player. But Natalia, what I really want to say about her is that she is one of the only politicians in the kingdom that actually does stuff. You ever notice that? Like the king and, and the ministers and the uh, uh, the foam master and all the other made-up titles, they're just kind of complacent. They're totally cool with just sitting on their laurels and doing whatever, or kind of doing the whole Machiavellian, we got to manipulate everything because we're evil thing. I shouldn't say evil, but you know what I mean, right? Because they're leaders, because they're nobility, aristocracy. I've, I've said use that word so many times today, it's so appropriate in this freaking game. But she is someone who actually likes to get out there and do things. And you notice that she's pretty much the one that everyone has faith in in her kingdom. Now, there's actually some hints that she's not part of the noble blood, uh, notably her hair color comes to mind. And when it is revealed that she is not actually of noble birth, that's kind of an interesting moment because, well, first of all, my first reaction was, so? Because I've never really held a lot of stake in blood. Uh, that's been true since I was a child. And in addition to that, I know history. And there are many, many, many times in real life history where there's been a prince or a king or a queen or an empress who has not actually been a blood relative to the person in charge or the person previous but it doesn't freaking matter because they were either adopted or married in or whatever. Their claim is still valid. I'm sorry, the trash truck is going by right now. I apologize if you can hear it in the background. So to me, this girl who has been raised as princess, who has been adopted as princess, who has been accepted by the people as princess, has every legal, if I could put it into such terms, claim on the throne as if she had actually been by blood. So my first reaction was, and? And of course, she takes it pretty hard. But at the same time, that just kind of helps to reinforce her determination to do. And it is her actions that then make her more popular by the people, and again, lead to that prosperity, wonderful thing. So it's it's some good stuff. I, I like what they do with it. I have to say, Jesus Christ, really? I have to say, one of the things I do love most about Tales of Games is the characters. A lot of effort is put into the main protagonists and and making them relevant or useful or whatever. But it's time to go ahead and talk about Van really quick. And one other, excuse me, two other characters I want to talk about, and then we're going to start talking about some more large-scale stuff. Uh, Let's talk about Van. So I mentioned how he is sympathetic and understandable. Now I want to stress this. First of all, it was funny to me. Uh, I didn't actually know Van was the villain walking into this. That was not spoiled for me. However, in, I think, like five minutes into the game, it's really early on, there's a scene where Luke is sitting there at the table, and Van's there, and Van starts talking, and he's voiced by Michael McConaughey. Now, for those of you not aware, Michael McConaughey is among my favorite voice actors in the world. Um, But he also tends to voice bad guys. Not always. Not always. He voiced Uther over in Warcraft, you know. But... I hear Michael McConaughey's voice, and I go, he's the villain. And it was just the first thing that came to my mind. Because you, you don't pull in Michael McConaughey to play random dude B, right? <laughs> I mean, 
Now, gr granted, that is actually a baseless thing, and I shouldn't have thought that in retrospect, but that was my very first thought, and, and hey, what do you know? It turns out to be right. But I do love how they present his character arc. I do love the fact that Van himself is effectively a multifaceted character, and each facet reflects a more dark version of each of the main protagonists. I'm not going to go down the list. I think I think it's fairly obvious which part of him reflects on Luke, which part of him reflects on Tyr, which part of him reflects on Jade, etc. But I think the best part about his character is that he, what he's going through is super understandable. And I want to stress that word rather than sympathetic. I do have sympathy for the boy. Um... I, I want to talk about his other thing later when I'm talking about the theme stuff, so let's, let's save that for the moment. But the, the the base concept he had, you know, the destruction of the score, the freeing of humanity from the score, is something I'm completely with. Now, granted, I, me, real life, the person, you know, Laura Renner, sitting here in his chair, uh, am very big on freedom of will, self-determination, etc. That's something I've always been a huge proponent of. So if someone walked down and said, everything you will ever do ever is destined and fated, I would naturally rebel against that. That would be my, my gut instinct to say no and to try to fight that. So from my perspective, what Van is going through and why is completely understandable. And for reasons I'll get to in a second is something that I think would be overall considered to be a heroic thing. What's interesting about Van, and this is part of his facet that reflects Jade, is that he is basically a sociopath. Um, he does show some degree of caring, but at the same time, it could be argued that every person he cares about, he only cares about because they're, they have a use or a function. Uh, great example. As when he's in, in uh, as Karyuth. Uh God, I hope I'm saying that right. Still, I, I've got my pronunciation guide right there. When he's in as Karyuth, uh and he was going to save, uh, God, I forget which ion it is, but either way, one of the ions. And instead, he has to save Ash because Ash is still useful to him. Because the whole point of this entire endeavor was to ensure that Luke was going to die here. Luke was supposed to die at as Karyuth. That was always the intention. He was going to to build, spend seven years building up this stupid clone in order to burn him in this particular action as part of his action, as part of his design to do this. But he still needed Ash for the rest of his plan. So, all right, I have to save Ash. And then when he gives his advice to Tyr, you know, his sister, um, it's not like the advice of a brother who cares about his sister. It's just, I want you to understand how wrong you are. There's a certainty by, about Van. There's an absolution about his mentality and his ideals that he adheres to with such vigor and zealousness. It's actually almost a bit of a shame that he is basically convinced that he is wrong in the final battle because for the entire rest of the game he has been resolute. And so he wants her to understand the correctness of his cause, keeping in mind that if his plan overall succeeded she would die. There would be tier 2.0 but she would have gone away, and arguably Van himself would as well. So, it's not like he's trying to, to he gives her this advice to use the, uh, the harmonic foam or rhythm, whatever the hell it was called, you know, the, the, the singing that happens to match the pattern in order to save her life because he cares so much, right? And it's kind of hard to argue with his overall mindset, but what's most interesting to me is, well, I guess this is a good time to drift over into the other topic. I just want to say really quickly that Moe's, I just wanted to say something about Moe's really quick. Moe's is super pathetic. I was actually amazed how much presence Moe's had in the overall game, given that he was effectively a small fish, which is funny because you'd think he wouldn't be a small fish. And uh, Ion... Ion's the real villain of this game. I just want to say my opinion on that really quick. Now, I, I want to make this clear. The original Ion. The one who thought of Arietta as literally a pet. The one who probably is the one who actually made up this whole plan to destroy the score. And probably is the one who pushed that on Van. And who definitely was involved in the original planning stages of that overall plan that I just mentioned. Uh, he also, everything I hear about him, everything that they speak about him, just makes him out to be an absolutely despicable human being. Like, Jade, the sociopath, 
comes across as a better person, and Van, the the megalomaniacal e evil guy, comes across as a better person than the way they speak of Ion in, in past tense. Now, of course, that's all uh, conjecture, because, of course, Ion's not in the game. But, you know, whatever. But let's talk about the thing I really want to talk about, and that's the score. Now... I'm going to go ahead and say that certain parts of this story don't actually make sense to me. I'm going to go ahead and admit that there's certain parts of it that just kind of made me go, wait a second. Because it felt like they were trying for a theme. And again, I already mentioned this, destiny. And yet they changed that at literally the last minute. In the ending, they suddenly changed their mind about that. Because the whole game, it's all about following this pattern. You know, they, they create the Fomacry replicants, and they, they do this whole thing where they're going to, to go against destiny and go against everything that's known, except all of that was still a part of the score. D despite the idea that the replicas are outside of the jurisdiction of Lorelei, whatever that actually means, they they don't actually change anything. They don't actually alter anything. Stuff keeps happening as it was already prophesied to happen. And then they, there's another thing. They describe the score as a memory of the planet, which implies past tense, which implies that this is basically how things have always happened. So in other words, at that point... Okay, let me rewind a second. When they originally started talking about the score and its presentation, what it meant to me was a very specific form of patterns. A lot of the game follows this overall trend and theme of patterns. And the... Uh, oh my gosh, my nose itches so badly. I'm sorry. The, the, this idea of... Uh, I mean, obviously the music thing. The music motif is absolutely everywhere in the entire game. Uh, even the, the secondary names of, of the god generals are all based off of musical patterns and concepts. But anyways, that mathematical pattern is how I originally perceived the score. The idea of everything in the world is made up of the seven phones, or phonomes or whatever, right? You know, we got the elemental ones, and then we've got the phonome of sound. Urgh. And so, with this presentation, once you know the pattern, you could perfectly predict everything. Because everything is part of this pattern. Everything is being presented as if it has to follow the same patterns that it always does. Now, by the way this is presented, it can and has been argued that this means that people don't have freedom of will. Now, I'm not sure I believe that personally, because there's a couple of hints that that's not 100% true. It's just that everyone has their freedom of will, and this is what they would do. Or to put this into another way, it's not about the fact that destiny says you must do this. It's just that you are this person, and the score knows you are this person, and therefore it knows what you will do because you are you. Right? Now that's, that's how, what the score always came across to me. And then the idea then was that the replicas were things that didn't fit the pattern. Because their, uh, their frequency uh, their, uh, is harmonically off from, from the rest of, of the phones. So the idea that they wouldn't fit in the pattern, they literally wouldn't fit in the pattern. It would be like something adding purple to a line of music. You know, it, there's no, it doesn't work, right? But again, even with the replicas added, as it's later stated, all of this is still going according to plan. It's actually part of the major twist of the game, at least I, that's what it felt like to me, that, you know, oh my god, we must fight destiny. Screw destiny! And then we start doing our own thing, and it's like, yes, we're changing destiny! And later on it's real, no, this is, this is all completely according to plan. In fact, that's part of the point, that this destruction of the world that Van is perpetuating, thanks to his whole uh, Eldron, or Eldwan, or god, I forget how to pronounce it, thing, would be, is exactly what was predicted to be the destruction of the world. The end of this planet. Because the seventh phone, uh, or no, no. The seventh, uh, oh god, what they call it? The, the seventh, uh, stone, god, I can't remember what they called it, was still stuck in the core of the planet, and that's what was causing all the problems, right? <laughs> and I'll talk more about that in just a second. But then at the in, in the ending, somehow Luke decides, I'm going to stay behind, I'm going to like merge or whatever with Ash, whatever actually happened there. And then Lorelai shows up and said, I can't believe you changed the pattern. How? <laughs> I'm just left thinking, what? 
What caused that? Now, I do have a theory, but it's a really vague theory, a lore theory, if you will. I would love to hear your guys' thoughts on this, because, uh, first of all, I know I've, I've seen the interview uh, where the, the, the developers flat out said that the ending is supposed to be interpretive, that they didn't have never flat out said what's happening in the ending, that it's up to us. So I would love to hear your thoughts on that as well. But my personal thoughts, both on the ending and the whole how they were able to change things, is because the replicas weren't outside the pattern, but the one thing that was outside the pattern is a perfect merger of the replica and the original. The idea here being that it was never predicted that a replica, which, would ha which had reached the point of having its own uh, sentience and sapience, its own freedom of will, if you will, would then wi be willing to give that up and remerge itself with its original self. It's also worth noting that Ash was dead when he did that too, and I think that's involved as well. So him being willing to effectively remerge with Ash is the thing that would enable it to cause an actual true tossing purple onto the music line thing in order to truly interrupt the pattern, in order to truly be able to accomplish this thing and uh, free the seventh, whatever it was called, in order to restabilize the harmony of the planet. In fact, I have this theory, and I don't know if they've ever come back to the uh, Aldrund, but I love the idea that the miasma and the mud and the muck of down below of uh, of Cliffoth was was effectively receded over time and was fixed, because after all, the whole point of that was that that was being caused by these vibrations, by this harmonic, uh, or I guess I should say the opposite of harmonic, you know, the the, the incorrect frequency of the planet. Thanks to the whole, you know, the planet storm and the fact that they had released, uh, they had released the other six, and they had created this phonic uh, resonance throughout the world in order to allow their their continents and their people and their society to establish and make this new technological era happen. And because the seventh wasn't out there, because it was incorrect, it was six harmonies, not seven, as it should have been, the planet was literally... I mean, they even show this when you take uh, Tartarus, or Tartarus, or what they call it, uh, down there to try and help artificially uh, placate the vibrations that are happening, right? So the idea being that if the seventh was then added, the planet would restabilize, and the Cliffoth would be able to finally return to a normal state. We probably wouldn't even need the Sephiroth trees at that point, but I'm getting off topic. I don't even really need my notes at this point, to be completely honest, because I already know what I'm talking about here. The, except for names, of course. I don't know any names, because I'm terrible. The idea that Luke and Ash combined, uh, probably even with Lorelei, honestly, is what allowed this to change. It's the only thing I got. It, it just seems like such a suddenly out-of-nowhere left turn, given the whole rest of the story was the fact that, that thematically we were on the rails, and we couldn't get off the rails, right? Now, that being said, I do want to give my opinion on the Luke-Ash thing. I think I already did, kind of. But my, my idea is that Luke and Ash fully remerged, and thus Luke doesn't actually exist anymore. It's just Ash with Luke's memories now. So, what Ash will decide to do with regards to Tyr or with regards to uh, uh, Natalia is anybody's guess at that point. But th that's my take on it, that Ash was basically given a second life thanks to Luke rescinding himself into him. <sighs> I'm not much of a shipper, so I got nothing on that. <laughs> uh, you know me, guys. I hate romance! All romance must die! Now... <laughs> I also want to talk more about the score. I know we're, we've been talking about the score, but I, I have more to talk about it. Oh my god, my nose. You know what? Hang on. Allergies. So, the score is one of those things that I love about fiction. It's something that can't exist in real life. And it, it, Tales of the Abyss does actually go out of its way to properly analyze this very concept and take this concept to its logical extreme. Um, what would happen if in real life, in, in, in the real world, we knew the future perfectly and utterly? Right? They even refer to this. They've got the open score and the closed score and the, how they keep the closed score hidden from people because it's just going to happen and they know it and they don't want people to freak out over it, right? 
And yet, it's interesting because every, even when they do actually reveal the closed score, even when people are aware of what's going on when it comes to the closed score, they still do it. It still happens pretty much exactly as predicted. There's only a couple of times where that's not true. Now, it's also worth noting that the only absolutely 100% true predictions were the ones that Yulia herself did a bagrillion years ago, but point remaining. So, the stagnation in this setting is remarkable. And it's such a weird form of stagnation. Like, a lot of fiction deals with stagnation in general. You know, the Night Elves of World of Warcraft, or uh, the Imperium of Man over in Warhammer 40k, or... Uh, I'm, I'm having trouble coming up with another example. I suppose the Q over in Star Trek would be a good example. You know, the idea that we hit a certain point, either culturally or magically or scientifically, and then we just, we just stop. We plateau. But here we have just the weirdest example, because everyone knows, well, there's the score, so it doesn't really matter. It's so ground into people. There's some moments which almost come across as alien in this game. And there are great scenes where someone, you know, questions, how could you do this? And the person being questioned doesn't understand the question. Because it's so logical and so obvious to just follow the score. Because the score's true. It's what's going to happen. There's no question of that. I mentioned the sympathy thing with Van earlier. The idea that Van was literally used as a super weapon. And nobody was had any problems with that. Everyone was just cool with that. That's just what's supposed to happen. It's, it's, it's what has already happened, if you take it as the memory thing correctly. So nobody questions it. Nobody has a problem with it. God almighty, how many times do people just kind of accept death? Or, or torture, or war, or worse, because it's in the score. I mean, Eskiriuth is another excellent example of that. People just don't leave. And then there's this scene, and I'll talk about it in a second. So we see these people who are enslaved to this prophecy. And I find myself wondering how much of that is because of the prophecy itself. Now, what I mean by that is, again whether this is the memory of the planet or the pattern of the planet, what can be stated is that the revelation of the score changed the world, right? I think we could all agree with that. I mean, they already had uh, the Phonic Wars, they then had the Float War, right? The devastation of the non-kingdoms, blah, 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 right, right? So, one way or the other, if it's the pattern then people will follow this pattern because the pattern knows what they are and who they are. And it would also know that they are aware of the pattern, which would almost create kind of a, a feedback effect, wouldn't it? Where people are aware of the pattern, so they follow the pattern, and the pattern knows they're going to follow the pattern because they're aware of the pattern kind of a thing. Or, of course, this is just the memory of the planet as previously described, in which case this all already happened and therefore there's nothing to be said about it anyways, except for the time when it went wrong. Right, the ending. So, these... I, I don't even know how to properly put it. It's, it's, it's something I really wish I could actually have a proper discussion with people about. Again, I'd love to hear your thoughts about the score and its presentation because the idea of a society that is so has it so ingrained that, you know, they, this is the future and there's nothing they can do to change it and there's nothing they can do to alter it. And their universal acceptance of that fact is just kind of horrifying to me in its own way. And I've already kind of given away why, but damn, right? <laughs> just, wow! <laughs> there's, I mean, uh, I mentioned Moe's briefly earlier. His, excuse me, his attempts... His, his slavish devotion to the score is frankly part of his major character arc. Even when he is turned into a towards the end, he's still banging on about the score, the score. It's, like, it's, it's an obsession for the man. And even as he is attempting to lie and deceive into provoking this war, even when he sends his fake army to try and put a false flag operation out, he is still just trying to adhere to the score. This is what must happen. It brings to mind a people who don't really think. I think that's really what I find most horrifying about it. When you know the future, you no longer have to think for yourself. And you just, I mean, there's an old saying, uh, if you don't use it, you will lose it. 
And I really got the impression a lot in this game that the over-reliance on the score, especially at the leaders, at, at the echelons of leadership within the two kingdoms, especially the main kingdom, reached the point where people just stopped thinking. Because why bother? We know what's going to happen. And that there's a literal mental atrophy effect going on here. Now, I don't know how much of that's true, it's just the impression I was getting throughout the course of the game. I also... What else do I want to talk about? Um, uh, oh, hmm. Is that it? That can't be it. Hang on. Because I already talked about that. I, I kind of segued into the free will thing I wanted to talk about, and the planetary storm thing, which I kind of already mentioned. I do love the very way they present the planetary storm. The idea of... Uh, now, that kind of makes sense. That's basically the internet. I know that's a weird uh, analogy, but the idea that there's this thing that we have artificially created uh, for its own purpose, which was an enables us to expand in a particular technological field, and then we expand and expand and expand until we are basically reliant on that field as a culture, as a society, as, as a people. I mean, if you don't think <laughs> humanity relies on the Internet right now, I'm, I'm afraid I have some bad news for you. Ignoring the obvious fact that you're watching this on the Internet right now, uh, think for a moment about how much uh, trade and transaction of economy, how much medical information and data, how much scientific progress and research is being done. I'm completely ignoring the entertainment field. There's a lot of human society that sits on the Internet, and such is true with this world as well. Them sitting on their reliance on phone tech and the idea of having this phonic harmonic thing going throughout the course of the world, which is being maintained by the planetary storm. Now, what I find interesting personally is I got the impression, I don't think it was ever 100% confirmed, that the planetary storm isn't actually necessary as long as the planet is in true harmonic balance. But since that seventh piece was stuck in the core, it is not imbalance. So the idea here being that with during the ending, with the seventh piece released, with Lorelei being free to go out, uh, and the, the miasma, excuse me, and the mud being receded, they wouldn't actually have a need for the planetary storm anymore because the, har the harmonic balance would be restored and they would be able to keep using their tech and keep functioning as a society. It'll be really interesting to see, like, just a, a story or, or book or whatever, just something short, not, not a super long game, set after this to try and examine what would happen with the people who are literally used to not thinking and suddenly having to. What's the score say happens tomorrow? Nothing. What? Yeah, nothing. Uh, you know, I love that concept. I'm checking my notes here. I don't actually think I have much else to talk about. I did enjoy this game a huge amount, so uh, thank you for whoever requested it. I'll look it up when I put the credits at the end of this. Uh, I guess that's all I've got. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if anybody requests any Tales of games in the future. I hope you've enjoyed, and I'll see you guys next time.